Is Trump the new Antichrist? Of Nostradamus suggesting that some of today's most savage leaders were targeted the United States and Western Europe with their terrorist attacks. Maybe trusty lieutenants of this. Are they actually clearing the way for the third Antichrist's arrival? He saw at least seven rulers that would come to power before the time of the Antichrist. Some believe Saddam Hussein was one of these forerunners. They say it was written in the Psalms and interpreted by Nostradamus himself. He predicted once one was invented, one hundred hours, thirst, famine, when the comet was Saddam Hussein died and was hung. And on that very night before his death, a little smudge in the sky called Comet McNaught became visible. Comet McNaught in the next two weeks became the brightest comet in 60 years. Although Nostradamus experts suggest Saddam himself was the third antichrist, others disagree. They argue that unlike Napoleon and Hitler, as the supposed first two antichrists, Hussein lacked their vast power. Before you can qualify really to be the third antichrist, you've got to have a big army, you've got to have a big air force, you've got to have a big navy, You've got to have a lot of manpower. You've got to have a lot of economic resources. Saddam had a little of that, but not a whole lot of it. So he didn't really qualify to be the big bad wolf of the future. He saw Saddam Hussein as not the Antichrist, but a forerunner. Many of these would set the stage. Others suggest yet another quadrain as possible proof that the theory of forerunners to the third Antichrist is valid. It seems to implicate Osama bin Laden, mastermind of the attacks on 9-11. In the year 1999 and seven months, a great king of terror will come from the sky. We have the famous prophecy about the king of terror descending from the skies in 1999, which could be a reverse code for 1999 becomes 9111 September month. Great terror coming from the sky. Other followers of end-of-day prophecy have echoed the belief that bin Laden is the third Antichrist. But if he is bin Laden, he might qualify to be the third Antichrist. It's a little bit too early to tell. Well, as time has gone on, I think he would jump in the gun and either Saddam or bin Laden was no Saddam is the third Antichrist. Further examination of yet another contract focuses the emphasis back on the third Antichrist described by Nostradamus. I know So Antichrist can pop up in any country. And we don't know if he's going to be from the Middle East, from China. We don't know. He says that he will rise above all the kings and warriors. The Ayatollah Khomeini, Muammar Gaddafi, Kim Jong-il, with so many possible forerunners having come from the Middle and Far East, some interpreters believe it is no coincidence that the search for the Antichrist is now focused in such unstable ways. In the Middle East, some face the return of the Jewish people to Israel as further fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And further evidence, end times, and the Antichrist are here today.
primarily in 1970, written to control with Palestine. In the Balfour Declaration, they invited Jews from all over the world back to Israel. That began, in some Bible scholars' opinion, the last days as we know it. For other scholars, this hunt for the Antichrist conveniently pits one religion against another. It's so interesting that we as humans love to have an enemy. And throughout the ages, we have always wanted to focus either on a whole people group, on a society that we can have as our enemies. But what does Nostradamus say? If the evil forerunners to the third Antichrist have come and gone, what happens now? The enduring mystery of his quatrains has allowed multiple interpretations over the centuries on the details of the third Antichrist's appearance. Who do his followers actually believe may be this third and final false savior? As I read through some of his time periods, traditions are not promised. It's presenting us with alternative future. If we make a choice in this decade, then it's going to result in these events further down the line. If we respond to those events negatively, then this is going to happen. If we respond positively, maybe this is going to Today, believers see signs everywhere of global destruction. Does that this make them think that the Antichrist among us? If we accept these theories as facts, who is he finally? And how far along is he in his timeline of destruction? Is the clock ticking? Is doomsday fast approaching? There are those who believe the Nostradamus effect is occurring as ancient prophets and today's cataclysmic events converge. Some say this course is irrevocable. If it were up to human will, if it were a human will choice, we could change this and not have to go through it. We don't have that choice. Biblical prophecy warns of an antichrist who will destroy mankind. Nostradamus says we will suffer. Antichrist be a real person and not a construct of religion and symbolism. We are racing irreversibly toward the end of time and through the ultimate prophecies that condemn the earth. It is prophecy, and prophecy will be fulfilled to the letter. Nostradamus' prophecy suggests the third Antichrist may have powers that far exceed the other two. <laughs> great enemy of humanity will be worse than any man before him, in steel, fire, water, bloody, and monstrous. So the question becomes, are real leaders today actual candidates who meet the criteria identified in these prophecies? Critics point out that just about every world leader has been accused of fitting the profile of Antichrist at one time or another according to who is or is not popular at any given time. This individual changes the generation practically for decades. In the 1970s, it was common, or at least done, There's to identify possibly danger. someone like Henry Kissinger. 
and the list of unlikely candidates goes on. Still, some cite a mysterious name, Mabus. It appears in another one of Nostradamus's quatrains. Mabus will soon die, then will come. A horrible undoing of people and elements. Some believe Mabus is the name Nostradamus has assigned to the third Antichrist. Could Mabus be a coded reference? Two presidents have been linked to the name Mabus by extreme adherents of prophecy. The first is the 43rd president of the United States, George W. Bush. Even non-believers of this theory can explain the connection. You follow the rule of everything in lowercase letters. The GW becomes a because you can turn them upside down. Swivel them. And you have Ma Bush. Drop the redundant letter. You have Ma Although this seems to implicate George W. Bush as a candidate for the third Antichrist, scholars dismiss that suggestion, especially since his transition out of power is credited as being orderly. But what about President Number 44? More recently, there was a mayor in Georgia who got into trouble for circulating an email asking if Barack Obama was the Antichrist. So the Antichrist is a very fluid concept that can adapt to your needs. Why would Obama be the Notre Dame himself seems to definitively say that no recent U.S. The third Antichrist very soon emerged. Twenty-seven years of bloody war This prophecy suggests a long-lasting worldwide war will follow the third Antichrist's death. Could the third Antichrist have already come and gone? The Bible points to a series of cataclysms that may coincide with the aftermath of the third Antichrist. The book of Revelation states, The great earthquake, and the sun became <laughs> and the whole moon became like blood. The stars fell from the sky. Many say the natural and unnatural disasters that now plague the earth indicate we are at a tipping but are we really closer to the end than ever before? The prophecy trying to tell us about climate change, about famine, about a figure in the Middle East that we need to recognize before he starts a 27-year war. These are the things that the prophets like Nostradamus are trying to make us see and change. If we accept the theories by adherence of prophecy, that we may be on the path to Armageddon, Are the multiple quatrains of Nostradamus hard evidence that the third Antichrist is among us? The final line he talks about one of the ugliest visions that I've ever seen. The heretics dead, captives exiled, blood-soaked human bodies. Is he talking about hemorrhagic fever when he talks about blood-soaked human bodies? There's also something that Sounds like the knows when it's time to go into protect mode. Adding Lysol laundry sanitizer kills 99.9% of ill human bodies. This is also something that <laughs> certain biological <laughs> agents do. Does he mean a red and icy hail 
of some kind of nuclear discharge that creates a modest nuclear winter. <laughs> Those kinds of things are just getting closer together, and then they're escalating. A horrible undoing of people and animals. Do you think Nostradamus and his prophecies often Famine. show a fascination and a horror? He uses the word horrible a lot in looking at the more negative possibilities of the future. It is fact that multiple prices worldwide have deepened. Nuclear weapons among rogue nations have increased tenfold. Little Economies world. around the world remain on the right. brink of collapse. The U.S. government prepares for another terror attack on American soil. More coincidence? For believers, these are not random events, but dire signs of the coming apocalypse. We're seeing vast deterioration of our Earth and its environment. As that sea level starts to raise up, and countries start to be flooded, that's when the mass panic is going to hit. It's going to come upon us so quick that people will be panicked. We're talking about complete universal destruction where nobody can help anybody. But others suggest the prophecies of Nostradamus have a decidedly different meaning and purpose. I think people need comfort. They want to know what's going to happen, especially at times of great unease, such as we're experiencing at the moment. And Nostradamus here offers some sort of certainty, in the sense that so many of his portraits have been seen to be correct in retrospect. As the theory goes, the end fast approaches, the sands slip away, and the hands spin out of control. The third Antichrist wreaks havoc. Is this our future? Yeah, Perhaps that's... Perhaps Nostradamus. Perhaps. Yeah. Nobody fits the bill better. But many interpreters say we won't. But it's only the bill perfectly. the third Antichrist will make his demonic entrance. If we accept the premise that the Bible and Nostradamus are warning us, what messages remain for us to decode? Or are we ultimately destined to experience the Nostradamus effect? We gotta lock this motherfucker up, man. Put him to death and then pardon everybody else. Swear to God, it'll be, uh, it'll work out fine. But, uh, y'all don't listen to women. Y'all hate no, listening to women, don't you? It's gonna be your fucking downfall, stupid motherfuckers. So you don't, you can't, don't listen to women. You need a fucking council of women, like the, the Iroquois had. Yeshua, Homer V, Ian Rosenberg, first proof is a vision video. Yeshua. Dr. Oswald Hoffman, Dan Mason, Ian Rosenberg, Leslie Luciani, Chris. <laughs> what a great documentary information. 
filled from beginning to end. God bless all of us. 40 years this has made us so much information. Yeshua. Oh, shit. Faith of the founding fathers. One of America's most important founders. <laughs> That's Jesus' real name. She builds. Anyway, thanks for listening. The Roman Empire, 2,000 years ago, the greatest contiguous land empire the world had ever known, completely surrounding the Mediterranean Sea. Starting at the Strait of Gibraltar, it separates the continents of Europe and Africa. It comprised what is now Spain, Britain, France, Germany, Austria, Italy, the Balkans, Greece, and across the Black Sea, Turkey, Lebanon, Syria, Egypt, and the whole of North Africa back again to the Strait of Gibraltar, a fantastic panorama. In an historically brief period of time, tiny Rome set out to conquer what to them was the world.
far from the splendor of the city, lay the small provinces, as the Romans called it. As yet unimportant in the city, and yet the crossroads between Europe come from Asia. And Asia I said it from Asia. Africa. It was vital. It had always been vital. Yeah, to Christ. Here in this remote province, Yeshua, Jesus, was born. To understand the meaning of that birth, you must understand this land, Where which has been conquered and reconquered ever since the beginning of man himself. The oldest city in this oldest land is Jericho, a city famous for the wall which came tumbling down at the sound of Joshua's trumpet. What's going on now? Some advertisements. But in 1952, Kathleen Kenyon, a British archaeologist, discovered far older walls dating several thousand years before the pyramids of Egypt, making Jericho the oldest walled city to be found anywhere in the world. But the most startling find at Jericho were these odd-looking human skulls. Covering each skull is a layer of plaster, carefully shaped to reveal the face of a living human being. dead were buried under the floor of the house, but their skulls were kept with the family. This ensured that the wisdom of the ancestors would be preserved for their descendants. Infants who had little wisdom to pass on were buried in the earliest people of Jericho were not Israelites. Father Abraham would not be born for several thousand years. But why build here, 800 feet below sea level, where summer temperatures reach a sizzling 130 degrees? One answer may well lie with the Dead Sea, only five miles away. This is the saltiest body of water on the face of the earth. To ancient man, salt was more than worth its weight in gold. Without it, staples of meat and fish would last only a few hours on a sweltering summer day. For hundreds of miles around, Jericho's merchants literally provided the salt of the earth. Then abruptly, about 2300 B.C., the Amorites swept into the desert, tumbling Jericho's sturdy walls. 
Amorite struck north and then far, far to the east until he came upon the ultimate battle prize, Ur of the Chaldees, the birthplace of Abraham. Abraham was the first Israelite, the father of the Jewish people, ancestor of Jesus, and the root of our story. Abraham has often been considered a poor, illiterate nomad, economically backward and culturally deprived, but nothing could be farther from the truth. He was born in the splendor that was Ur, once the richest, most technologically advanced, most powerful city in the world. For thousands of years, that splendor lay hidden under a mountain of sand in eastern Iraq, under a mound something like this one, which local Arabs long insisted concealed Abraham's Ur of the Chaldees. Ur Junction was no more than a lonely stop on the night train from Baghdad when archaeologist Sir Leonard Woolley arrived in 1922. It took several years to free the mound from the rubble and sand that had buried it for millennia. The southwest face ultimately revealed an enormous structure of ancient mud brick. But the northeast face unveiled a far more dramatic surprise. It was a terraced temple tower, known to scholars as a ziggurat. When Abraham witnessed the regular religious processions in front of this imposing structure, it had been standing at least 1,700 years. It featured a stairway by which man could ascend to meet the gods. honored the moon god, Nana. No doubt this was once Abraham's foremost god. His shrine occupied the summit of the ziggurat. Its blue color matched the sky, the moon god's natural abode. This tall figure is Abu, the god of vegetation. All smallest are his human worshippers. Wrap-around skirts with a border of sheepskin tufts at the bottom were formal attire. Five years after the excavations began, Sir Leonard Woolley happened upon Ur's Royal Cemetery. Here he found ten musicians from Ur's Royal Court wearing finery of gold, lapis lazuli imported from Persia, and carnelian. One of the court musicians lay across the ruins of a harp, her fingers still touching its silent strings. Safety starts with real solutions. We all want the same thing, which is to protect our children, our loved ones, and our families. But we all want to do this responsibly. I approached farm ownership 13 years ago. Um, after
I was a lamp in front of a golden tree. Using technology millennia ahead of their time, Boris craftsmen fashioned the ram's body from silver, its fleece from carved shells. Everywhere lay priceless objects bearing mute to a civilization advanced beyond all others. Sir Leonard Woolley was awesome. In his published journals, he proclaimed to the world that Abraham's civilization possessed technical skills at least 2,000 years in advance of its time. Every generation of children was had in support. This may be the oldest of them all. As a little boy, Abraham probably played with a toy like this, was drawn across the floor this way, and it is significant that it had wheels, like the wheels of this toy chariot. It's generally thought that these people invented the wheel. And we're reminded by the trade on the Tigers and Euphrates rivers that it's not surprising they should also have invented the sail. Incredibly advanced as they were. It's generally accepted that they also invented writing. This is a letter in the time of Abraham. It's a little clay tablet about the size of a modern postage stamp. It's written on both sides and also on the right. And then hardened in the sun and sent by messenger to its destination. A little more sophisticated than that was this contract, which was inserted into its envelope and then sealed by the witnesses to be recorded in the archives. Abraham's civilization was among the first to develop mathematics as something more than just counting. These people understood fractions, square roots, cube roots, and even geometry. And all of this was learned in a school that was called the Tablet House. The teacher was called the father of the Tablet House. And the monitor was called the Big Brother with the stick. The stick was frequently used in the learning process. These children are counting in Acadian the language used by Abraham himself. They learned to write Abraham's cuneiform script. Written in that ancient language is an old schoolboy essay of which we have many ancient copies. It tells about the bad day in the life of a student in Abraham's time. I got up too late for breakfast, and I had to hurry away to school. So I begged my mother for two rolls. She gave me two rolls of bread, and I hurried away to school. When I got there, the monitor said, why are you late? I stepped inside the school and stood with my heart pounding before the teacher. I bowed low, and he forgave me. But a little later on, when I left the tablet house without permission, the big brother with a stick caned me several times. Later on, for talking in school, I was caned again. But the worst came when the big brother with the stick said to me, nobody can ever read your handwriting. When I got home that night, I talked to my father and complained about my bad marks. He invited the father of the tablet house to dinner, set him in a seat of honor, gave him a jar of oil, a robe, some money, and even a ring on his finger. 
Then the voice of the father of the tablet house began to change in tone. He said, this son of the tablet house will ascend to the pinnacles of the art of writing. The day will come when he will be first among his brothers. Since there are so many ancient copies of this essay, it is obvious that Sumerian teachers loved it and gave it as an exercise to their pupils. This was Abraham's land of Ur. This was the civilization so far advanced above all others that the Amorites coveted it as a battle prize. The army of Ur was ready. In the royal cemetery, Sir Leonard Woolley had found a mosaic of Ur's war machines. The characters are rendered in an almost comic style. But Ur's army was not to be laughed at. Its war chariots, still unknown in other civilizations, were pulled along by onagers that literally ran down the enemy. Those who escaped faced the charioteers with their drawn javelins, or the mighty infantry brandishing battle axes spears. Had another ancient enemy not attacked from the east as the Amorites attacked from the west, Ur's great Sumerian empire surely would have survived. Abraham's Ur fell, crushed under the heavy heel of the Amorites. Their ziggurat was destroyed. The gilded statue of the all-powerful moon god was carried off in derision. A poet of that period lamented, Woe, my city. Woe, my house. The gods have departed. There is no one left to hear the cry for help. The cry was heard. Not by Ur's splendid gilded image, but by the invisible unknown God who spoke in silence, promising Abraham that from the ashes of Ur would come new nations. And Abraham would be the father of those nations. Following his God's direction, took his family and a few followers and moved north and westward down the great plain between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers and then south through the valley of the Jordan. The book of Genesis says, Abraham was a very rich man with sheep, goats, and cattle, as well as silver and gold. The refugee from Ur was rich in everything but land. Even for a spot to pitch his tent, he was dependent on the hospitality of the Amorites, who now controlled most of the land of Canaan. In a vision, the Lord spoke to Abraham. Try to count the stars. You will have as many descendants as that. The whole land of Canaan will belong to your descendants forever, and I will be their God. 
As the vision continued, the Lord said, Your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land. They will be slaves there and will be treated cruelly for 400 years. A little more than a hundred years later, the vision began to come true. The descendants God had promised Abraham went down to Egypt in search of food. There they dwelt, first as strangers, then as slaves. Two, three, finally four hundred years passed. The Amorites were being driven out of the land of Canaan according to God's promise. Then the Egyptians, striking from their rich ribbon of land along the Nile, established an empire all along the coast of the Mediterranean. As far north as Megiddo and Hazor, they set up their chariot cities, fortresses from which they could launch their lightning strikes. 4,000-year-old wooden soldiers depict Egypt's irresistible armored columns, which swept like a flood tide up the entire length of the crest. When the Israelites were captive in Egypt, Egypt controlled the promised land. The Egyptians had a lasting influence on the conquered peoples of Palestine. Scarabs, symbols of Egyptian life after death, were manufactured in many cities of Palestine, including Jericho. Even in death, the conquered peoples of Palestine copied their Egyptian masters. These sarcophagi containing skeletons look like a child's drawing of the beautiful and sophisticated mummy cases of the Egyptian dead. They were found among the Canaanites, the Philistines, and the Sea People. Back in Egypt, the Israelites drank the sweat of misery as slave laborers under a succession of pharaohs. They were born, ground out their lives, and died beneath the whip. satisfied smile playing about his mouth. Clearly, he was a pampered and pleasure-loving monarch. Ramsey's marriages brought him 79 sons and 59 daughters, whom he proudly depicted on the walls of his temple. But Ramses II was known as Ramses the Great for more than his virility. The pyramid building stopped. But Egypt seems more important to the construction program. 
Nearly half the temples in Egypt bear the marks of his handiwork. He built two virtually new cities, one immodestly named after himself, the House of Ramses. And his name appears everywhere. Construction like that of the pharaohs before him was accomplished by forced labor. Egyptian wall paintings show foremen beating the slaves. The Bible identifies those slaves as Israelites. The labor to erect Ramses' colossal statue at the Ramesseum was enough to crush the stoutest spirit. This monument was sculpted from a single piece of granite and then handed over to slaves to move by hand. The poet Shelley has immortalized this colossus now fallen. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive. Stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, you mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless air, the lone and level sand, stretch far away. Ozymandias is Greek for one of Ramses' royal names, which he ordered carved within a loop of rope, with the ends tied together. It signifies that he ruled over all the sun and circles. When Moses appeared before Pharaoh, this was the proud man who refused to let God's people go. It was not until God caused the death of the firstborn sons of Egypt, including the Pharaoh's son, the king called for Moses, Get out, you and your Israelites. At the famous Red Sea, Pharaoh had a change of heart. Sending 600 chariots to recapture the fleeing slaves, the king tried to match wits and muscle with the Lord God of Israel. He lost ignominiously. Today, Hebrew cantors still sing the great victory song of Moses. I will sing to the Lord because he has won a glorious victory. He has thrown the horses and their riders into the sea. While the body of Ramses II exists today only as a leathery mummy, and his throne has long since crumbled, the song of Moses concludes, You, Lord, will be king forever. <laughs> Oh, Abel.
So with the parting of the Red Sea, the escape of the Israelites, the destruction of the Egyptians, the people of God moved back to their promised land. They fought for it every inch of the way and every minute of all the centuries. And then a little more than half a century before Jesus was born, the Romans, led by Pompey himself, Rome's crack legions marched into Palestine. In three brief months, Jerusalem would fall, and Israel would become a puppet state Roman Empire. Fleeing the terror of war in Jerusalem, a ten-year-old boy sought the safety of his grandfather's home in Arabia. Who would have guessed that in 25 years, Caesar Augustus would ask the Roman Senate to crown this boy, Herod, King of the Jews? Here in Rome to receive the kingly wreath, Herod's eyes grew wide with wonder. Though we see only ruins today, he saw Rome in all its glory. To supply the ubiquitous Roman fast. The Circus Maximus, where a quarter million spectators shouted themselves hoarse at the famous Roman game. The Forum with the House of the Vestals, perpetual virgin <laughs> Everywhere were marble temples. Everywhere were marble statues. It is said that Augustus found Rome Britain. The coast of Palestine is virtually devoid of natural harbors. In imitation of Caesar, Herod, newly crowned king of the Jews, marked out an area second in size only to the massive port of Alexandria. Then he lowered 30-ton blocks of stone into the sea, building a gigantic mole to break the force of even the most treacherous waves. Herod had performed a building feat worthy of Augustus himself. Now Israel had a harbor. But a harbor needs a city. And since a city cannot exist on salt water, taking a cue from Caesar, built an aqueduct. A Roman aqueduct. Nearby, he built a Roman city with marble streets and marble statues. With an amphitheater for entertainment in the Roman fashion. He named his Roman city Caesarea, after his mentor, Caesar Augustus. Here once stood a temple to Caesar, which Herod built in flagrant violation of the Moses. This gigantic statue rivaling the Olympian Zeus, one of the seven wonders of the world, impressed Caesar, but inflamed the Jews. 
several statues in honor of himself, the modern world saw no trace of them until 1873. Then an Arab donkey driver, removing stones from a wall being demolished on a site north of Jerusalem, came upon an ancient bust. This plaster cast of that bust shows the head of Herod the Great. The back of the head is missing owing to mutilation in ancient times. The tip of the nose is chipped. This is Herod the Great, in whose reign was born Jesus of Nazareth. Encircling the head is the laurel wreath he received in Rome. On top of that, the medallion with the Roman eagle at the center, the symbol of Roman power, which Herod wielded in Palestine on behalf of Rome. <laughs> However angry the Jews were with Herod for erecting statues of himself and temples to Caesar, they would never forget the magnificent temple he built to the God of Israel in Jerusalem. The scale model of the temple, very much as it appeared in Herod's day, it covered 36 acres, the equivalent of six city blocks. Main public entrance was called the Huldah Gates. From them, ramps led inward and upward to the court of the Gentiles. It was a place non-Jews could worship God in an otherwise Jewish temple. Here Agrippa, the right-hand man of Caesar Augustus, offered 100 oxen to the God of Israel on behalf of Rome. Two KFC wraps for five bucks? I'm a financial genius. That's better like it does. Porches surrounding the court of the Gentiles were supported by a double row of columns 40 feet high, cut from single blocks of white marble. This is called the royal porch because tradition held that here Solomon was anointed king. Behind these portals, overlaid by Herod with gold and silver and called the beautiful gate, was the court of the women. Called the court of the women because it represented the limit beyond which women could not go, it covered the expanse of one and a half modern football fields. <laughs> During worship, these 15 steps held choirs of chanting Levites. Here Joseph and Mary would one day present the infant Jesus to the Lord. Court, stood the famous altar of burnt oak, rising 22 feet high with four corners jutting out at the top like horns. 
facade of the sanctuary was decorated by four half pillars pointing 150 feet upward. They supported a row of gold-covered spikes designed to prevent birds from perching on the temple parapet. Rabbi said, whoever has not seen Herod's temple has not seen a beautiful building. Two huge mosques now occupy only a fraction of the space that once was the temple, part of Israel. Silver Dome del Aqsa and the Golden Dome of the Rock. In the past few years, extensive excavations have been made on the southern wall. The archaeologists have dug through the usual Turkish, Arabic, Crusader, Arabic, and Byzantine layers of buildings. They have exposed the base of the southern wall. Here it meets the western wall. It is possible to get some idea of the size and excellence of Herod's engineering. Remember that the original wall was double the height of what is left. Mr. Ben Dove is the director of excavation for both the southern and the western walls of the temple area in Jerusalem. We are sitting on the steps of the temple where Jesus stood and where one other man might have stood too, an unusual man, the man who built this temple. That's right. The man who built this temple, there's a step and all this way, the king held the great. How would you compare the quality and the uh, impressiveness of this temple with other buildings in the Roman Empire at that time. I think that speaking on temples, that was the largest in, in that world and maybe the largest in the world at all as a temple. Did he have any problems with the people in Rome over the building of the temple? Uh, he had, not that he had problems, but he was afraid that it might be a problem and uh, he did not know whether to ask them or not, to ask the Caesar in Rome. Uh, to get license for building here a temple because it was kind of uh, fortification, you know, uh, huge uh, walls of 30 meters, 90 feet high. One of the people told him, you have to start, first of all, building the temple. And at the meantime, if you send someone to Rome to ask for permission, they sent the man and he went one year to Rome. Because, you know, you can go straight to Rome, but you can travel all over Europe till you are coming there. And he was waiting for one year there. And then he came back in uh, one year. Three, three years that was trying to be finished to build the whole uh, area here. The answer of the seizure, by the way, was if they did not start, not to start. If they are, if they are in the middle, stop there. If they finish, what can you do? If finished, it's finished. And uh, that was the story. Seeing these huge stones, these megaliths, it seems incredible that even one of them could have been moved by hand, much less the thousands it took to build this temple. And then equally incredible that the entire superstructure could have been completed in only three years. This megalith, for example, weighs over 200 tons. The stones the Egyptians used to build the pyramids, by comparison, weighed only 15 tons. 15 tons! How did Herod's workmen raise a wall of such gigantic blocks to the height of 90 feet? 
The Turks, the Arabs, and the Crusaders who rebuilt this wall long after Herod could not duplicate this tremendous accomplishment. It's easy to distinguish their lightweight rubble from Herod's gigantic limestone blocks. What do you get? The latest explanation of how Herod moved these enormous stones comes from a little-known excavation north of the prayer area of the Temple Mount, known as the Wailing Wall. Far in the background is a black door concealing a 600-foot tunnel which Jewish archaeologists have been quietly excavating since the Six-Day War. Opposite what may have been the holy place of the temple, the granddaddy of all megaliths has been discovered. It measures 46 feet long, 10 feet high, and 10 feet wide, and weighs an astonishing 415 tons. Engineers once theorized that Herod's stones were pushed to the temple site on log rollers. They now agree that a 415-ton megalith would have crushed the stoutest logs to a pulp. <laughs> in the same tunnel, a mystery so stone was found. One side is perfectly it. flat, and the other side is smoothly curved. Why would Herod's masons have quarried a megalith with this contour? A third stone, located in one of Herod's quarries a half mile north of the Temple Mount, may hold the key. Obviously, it's round, cylindrical. <clears throat> it was discarded by Herod's masons because it cracked. Could it be that all the Temple megaliths were quarried possible? round, then rolled down a specially constructed hmm. ramp into the Temple area and maneuvered into position? while the great slabs, like the one found in the rabbinical tunnel, were chiseled off on all four sides in order to achieve the final rectangular shape. The answer lies with Palestine's incredible builder, Herod, whose architectural genius earned him the title Herod the Great. Herod's temple would have ingratiated him to Jewish hearts forever had he not first erected his pagan abominations here in the holy city. This is a hippodrome built to promote Herod's favorite pastime, the Roman games. Some archaeologists...